I'm now about to mention a name that usually comes above the title because he's won six Oscars as writer and director of such movies as The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, and The Apartment. He's had an astonishing total of 21 nominations for such others as Ninochka, Hold Back the Dawn, Ball of Fire, Double Indemnity, the Foreign Affair, The Big Carnival, Stalag 17, Sabrina, Witness for the Prosecution, and Some Like It Hot. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the eminent, illustrious, charming, funny, and magnificent Billy Wilder. It says in the Bible, in the fifth book of the New Testament, chapter 20, verse 35, it says there, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, here then are the, the, the nominations for this year's Director's Award, and the nominees are Wolfgang Petersen in Das Boot, Steven Spielberg for E.T., the extraterrestrial. <laughs> Richard Attenborough for Gandhi. <laughs> Sidney Pollack for Tutsi. <laughs> and Sidney Lamet for The Verdict. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is your verdict. The winner is... Hello there, all you mothers, you singers, you guardians of my soul. And welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Still the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. My name is Lee Charles. And I'm Spro, ready to wow you with all my opinions on movies from 1982, the year I was born, and a year in movies most of you probably haven't thought about for a while, which is sad. Well, even more sad than forgetting is never knowing. And I think today's audiences can't really be bothered with films that came out before they were born. In fact, most audiences are more enamored of television, I think, than cinema. And and to be sure, there's better television now than there was 25, 30 years ago. But I think if you're watching closely, all the best shows on TV or streaming are angling to be as cinematic as they possibly can be. But let me rein myself in before I forget to introduce and welcome our guest today, my friend, Lawrence. Lawrence, thanks for coming back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. I think this one's going to be a bit tougher for me than last time. And why do you say that? Uh, well, because during my last appearance, uh, we discussed the rightful heir to Best Picture for 1980, and Apocalypse Now so clearly deserved the award over the winner and any other contenders for that matter. It was head and shoulders above the competition. Still can't even believe that Kramer v. Kramer won. It shouldn't have been in the same category as Coppola's masterpiece. But this time... I think even the incumbent director did a pretty good job telling the story of a, a truly great man, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching Gandhi very much. There are several additional directors that showed some great vision with their films of 82, and I'm torn between two myself. I still haven't decided yet. Well, I like when the show evokes those kinds of feelings. Um, mm -hmm. This was Spro's idea, and I originally felt the same way as you did, but I kind of came around on it. 
Why do you think it's only super dorks like Spro and me who want to watch and talk about movies from 40 years ago or longer? Because movies were better 40 years ago. From a technical perspective, filmmakers had much less goodies to work with, and they had to rely on sheer ingenuity to tell engaging stories and dazzle us with visuals. Actors' loftiest goals at that time were just to be, I think, good entertainers. Nowadays, the people from Hollywood feel like out-of-touch, hypocritical foghorns for social change and spokespeople for consumer products or even leaders of bizarre religions. Filmmakers didn't need to be concerned about upsetting social watchdogs for every unintended microaggression. Hollywood was always about making money, like anything. But like everything else that we consume, it seems these days the quality is steadily going down while the price continues to go up. Movies were better because the focus was on making good movies instead of targeting the widest possible audiences. Uh, I'm a cliche old man, I guess. Change can be good, but by and large, the changes that I've seen in Hollywood, just like in professional sports, they feel foul to me. I thought you'd mention Instagram, the ticking and the talking or the snappies, basically the daily viewing experiences of America's youth. Well, then I guess it's a a case of chicken or the egg. Did less thoughtful audiences drive the devolution of films or did the devolution of films create less critical audiences? I don't know. That's a really cool question. And the answer would be elusive and require extensive amount of research. Man, that would make an enthralling book. Who killed cinema? So my my students are able to watch a movie on Friday. I do the before and after school program and my students are able to watch movies on Fridays. And I noticed that their attention was not too enthralled with movies of today. They even got PG-13 sign-offs, permission slips from their parents, didn't really care for any of the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies or whatnot. But I put on like The Princess Bride, Sandlot. I put in all our old ones, the one, movies that we were raised in, and they were in front of the screen watching and like clamoring for more. They're like, can we watch more of your kinds of movies? I think even though we're old men on this podcast, I think there is an audience for people to go back to the era that we're about to talk about and see these movies because... I feel like nowadays when you go see a theater, you're like, I've seen this movie before. We're not straining for originality as back in the day. I'm just going to fall back on something that Roger Ebert said, which is bad movies have a way of finding you, but you have to find the good ones. So Hmm. I know from my own experience that I do like old movies, movies from before my era, but I don't love them as much as I like movies from my era. So there's that, there's that cultural thing too, you know, kids may or may not be interested in, in older films from our generation because there's there's big maybe not big differences but significant enough differences in culture that they don't they're not going to get all the references they may not understand everything correctly and it just doesn't feel and look and sound like what they're used to so it, it takes a person who's truly interested in cinema to explore movies from different eras because it has changed quite a bit from decade to decade in my opinion yeah and especially if you're following directors I mean we think of directors like Quentin Tarantino and Richard Linklater and uh, David Fincher and Steven Soderbergh and, you know, maybe even Kevin Smith. We think of these guys... I just mentioned a bunch of dudes too. We think of them as sort of extensions of our own beliefs and ideologies and the way they see the world is kind of the way we want to see the world. So yeah, when you go back in time and you're watching John Ford movies or Frank Capra movies or, you know, very rarely is there a director that transcends those generational gaps. I think Billy Wilder might be one. Hitchcock would be another. Kurosawa. 
Kurosawa, David Lean for me, although probably not for you guys, but. And there's, I mean, this might be because it's an older generation voting on it as well, but the AFI, the American Film Institute, always puts out a list of like the 100 greatest films of the last 100 years, and they have to update it. Why? Because years pass, and so the last 100 years constantly shifts forward. But the greatest films of the last 100 years, I used to know this off the top of my head, I think there's only one to three films that they put on that list in the 21st century, which would be 21%. (laughs) of that hundred years. And I think off the top of my head, the only one I know for sure is I think is Memento on there. No, I think it's fellowship of the ring Mm. is the only one in the 21st century that I can remember. But even that is telling because I can't off the top of my head, probably think of like something I would say is like, that's a great, that's a standing, the test of time film. There will be made recently. There will be blood. No country for old men. Memento. There will Um, be blood was like 2007. That's 14 years ago. All right. Let's just move on. (laughs) (laughs) Little patter at the beginning there brings us to Oscar Fun Facts with Spro, brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. So an Oscar fun fact about a show so long ago is hard to come by. So some education. The 55th Academy Awards, which does that make you feel old considering we're approaching the 100th show and yet the award show celebrating the movies and around the years that we were born was the 55th one. <laughs> this show is also hosted by four people, Liza Minnelli, Dudley Moore, Richard Pryor, and Walter Matthau. But what I found in my research was something I feel like the audience might be tired of me preaching about this season, and that were the words of the first presenter, the president of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, Faye Kanan, who was a writer-producer in the arts. Mrs. Kanan was an American screenwriter, playwright, and producer who was president of the Academy from 1979 to 1983, which in the Oscars world is four terms, Apparently a term is a year. She was the Academy's second female president. The first, the iconic Betty Davis, who left after only a month. Yeah, must be an unenviable job, despite its prestige. So I have her speech here. We'll be back. This is a banner year for movies. I don't think we've ever honored an array of films with more diversity or power to move us, entertain us. This year, the Academy Awards will be seen in 71 countries by over 300 million people among them 
150,000 hearing impaired persons who will be seeing and hearing it for the first time. Australia is carrying the show live via the Pacific satellite. Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Brazil live via the Atlantic satellite. Canada and Mexico are picking it up live. In Greece, a young journalist who interviewed me assured me, I know a lot about your country and your people. I asked him when he'd last been here, and he said, oh, I've never been, but I've seen your movies. I knew what he meant. Much of what we know about each other, we learn from each other's movies. They transcend language and geography in a way nothing else can. That gives those of us who work in this remarkable medium an added responsibility to let our movies mirror the life around us with all its beauties and all its warts, laughing at its idiocies, as well as celebrating its spirit and humanity. And you, our audiences, have an obligation too to help us keep the screen free and open and bold and critical so that, like my young friend in Greece, we can go on saying to each other, I know a lot about your country and your people. I've seen your movies. Thank you. So the first thing I want to say is that I guess the, her microphone was picking up people rudely talking in the audience because that was not us talking through her speech. Yeah. <laughs> and I really could have I could have cut off the beginning bit, but it was very interesting to me that she was like saying like these people are hearing or seeing this broadcast over here because of the Pacific satellite. Like she was pointing out like and maybe wrongly, but like I've never heard somebody be like, well, this the satellite over the Pacific is what we're bouncing off of to go into their thing. So 1982, it was just kind of like a nice nostalgia of, I guess, just how we were growing as an entertainment uh, field. So the reason why I wanted to play that is in some ways, I don't feel I don't like how filmmaking has evolved. During the opening number, Walter Matthau sang that the Academy chose its nominees from around 417 films released that year. And we're now over 800. So we're almost double. But what's the ratio of good to bad? Can we only assume with more films, we're getting more bad to good? We used to know what wasn't a great film because it went straight to video, but now video is gone. And and are we lucky now because bad movies go straight to obscurity? But doesn't it seem like more and more theatrical films are bereft of originality? So we now live in a time when good films are found in art houses, high budget films are found in theaters regardless if they're good or not, as it's just studios trying to make their bucks back, and okay films are at the red box. Streaming services are the evolution of hundreds of channels, so you never know what you're going to get from a movie on there, but I'm finding more and more of the movies are half-baked, either needing a couple more drafts of the script or a couple more months in the editing room. Streaming services are churning out projects like China's production of Happy Meal Toys, something entertaining for the ride home, but nothing to write home about. Can I jump in here for just a second? This is something Absolutely. that I, I talk about all the time. Uh, you know, I have certain streaming services at my house and there are people who think that I should get more so that I can get certain programs or movies that you can't find in the streaming services that I already have. And what, what I find is it doesn't matter. I 99% of what I'm toggling through, I, I have no interest in. Just looking at the thumbnails, I'm like, this is crap. This is all crap. There's so much, so much to choose from and nothing to see. Um, first of all, we kind of don't un- interrupt Spro when he's in the middle of his <laughs> Oscar fun facts. We kind of just let him riff. But uh, was that a direct reference to me suggesting that you just suck it up and pay the $5 a month for Hulu so you can watch some uh, Family Guy and American Dad? If, if it was a direct reference, I would have referenced you. Gotcha. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. It reminds me of the time, I think it was the 90s, when people were like, oh, 100 channels and nothing to watch. Now it's like 50 streaming services, still nothing to watch. Like it's, we're just evolving to oversaturated with entertainment and not really being wowed by anything. So why do I want to point this out in relation to Mrs. Kanan's speech? Because there are people who love some of the mediocre stuff. My generation has aged out where some of these younger actors... I don't see why they're celebrities, but then I have to remind myself it's not for me to know. If there's a kid out there in the world that is putting up Alex Lothar or Bella Thorne posters in their rooms to get them through the hard times, then who am I to judge? I shouldn't judge. Anything and everything that does good in this world, we should have more of. And despite my bitching that anything and everything could and should be better, I need to understand that some things just have to be great for one person to be good enough for me. Hell yeah, dude. Well, we are looking at the best director of 1983, which was Richard Attenborough for Gandhi. Richard Attenborough for his film Gandhi. It was difficult to separate the reverence for Gandhi from a reverence for Attenborough's film, or even maybe a reverence for Ben Kingley's performance. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow members, of the Academy. Without Joe Child and Jake Eberts and the National Film Development Corporation of India, the film would not have been made. Without Marty Baum, I would never have been able to maintain my courage. I am totally bowled over by this and I think an enormous contribution to my holding it must go to Frank Price and Columbia Pictures for their courage in agreeing to distribute it. There are many people I would like to thank and some of you, some you have already honored. But I would simply say to Sidney Lumet and Sidney Pollock and Wolfgang Peterson and Steven Spielberg company. Thank you very much. Bro, you suggested the topic of today's episode. And like I mentioned earlier, I think I tried arguing with you, probably really persuasive stuff like, come on, man, I like Attenborough and I like Gandhi. <laughs> but first of all, just because we decide the Oscar should have gone to somebody else doesn't mean we or I didn't like Gandhi, the movie, or the person. All it means is that we think at least one person did a better job. First of all, if you've no idea who Richard Attenborough is, he was a British man who began his career as an actor. As a young man, his most famous role was in The Great Escape, where he played Bartlett or Big X. But if that's too far back for you, he was the owner of Jurassic Park, John Hammond, in, well, Jurassic Park. And if you happen to see the 1994 remake of Miracle on 34th Street, he played Santa in that one. Attenborough directed his first film in 1969 at the age of 46, which is gives me hope, and his final film in 2007 at nearly 84. Gandhi came out in 82 and remains his highest critical acclaim. He struggled for nearly two decades to get the rights and secure funds. Allegedly, a third of the film's $22 million budget came directly from the Indian government, straight from their treasury. 
the film won over almost every critic, though, like any good film, it did have a few detractors. One common criticism was that it deified Gandhi by purposely changing or avoiding any events that might have painted the man in a negative light. So, for example, in the opening scene of the film, Gandhi's thrown from a South African train for simply being Indian, an event which launches him into socio-political activism. Supposedly, Gandhi's real beef with the railroad was that Asiatics had to use the same door as Africans. So more segregation was what Gandhi initially fought for, allegedly. Attenborough had 20 years to do his homework on the guy, which makes me wonder if that epigraph was an acknowledgement that his film wouldn't and couldn't be comprehensive. I mean, what biographical film could and actually meant to preempt the criticism that he knew was coming. The quote is, no man's life can be encompassed in one telling. There is no way to give each year its allotted weight to include each event, each person who helped to shape a lifetime. What can be done is to be faithful in spirit to the record and to try to find one's way to the heart of the man. I do know that if Attenborough had included any of Mahatma's shortcomings, he would have been criticized for that. So, you know, damned if you do and all that. Anyway, I think the best thing that can be said about Attenborough's direction is the breadth of shots and the fact that he manages to fill the frame with extras galore. In fact, this movie holds a world record for most extras in a single shot more than 300,000, 200,000 of which were volunteers, the rest contract workers, appeared during the funeral scene. Uh, And according to Guinness, the scene was filmed on the anniversary of the real Gandhi's funeral uh, and had to be done all in one morning. How painstaking it must have been to wrangle this many bodies, but the result is impressive. And nearly 40 years later, it's strangely nostalgic seeing this many real people in frame and not a CGI ocean of humanoid blobs. As they say, they don't make them like they used to. And to that effect, uh, Newsweek's Jack Kroll almost pinpoints exactly how I felt when rewatching Gandhi the other day. Attenborough's old-fashioned style is exactly right for the no tricks, no phony, psychologizing quality he wants. I absolutely felt the old-fashioned style, but I don't agree that it marries perfectly with the material. Instead, it feels as though Attenborough drew up these storyboards in the mid-60s, back when Alec Guinness was being considered for the lead role, and then never revisited them following the stylistic advances of 70s cinema. Some of the words and phrases used to describe his style here are, I already said how old-fashioned, but how about self-denial, simplification, and lacking depth of a more academic approach? It's important to note that these phrases were not used as negatives, however. Quite to the contrary, critics seem to think Attenborough's film of a humble and straightforward man was well served by the verisimilitude provided through modest filmmaking. I totally get it, but I think in the efforts to support the film and the man, critics chose to ignore that it drags. I cannot believe John Bloom won an Oscar for cutting this thing. I mean, I get why it was nominated. It's a huge story spanning 50 years, chopped down into just north of three hours, but unlike Godfather 2 or Malcolm X, it does not fly by. <laughs> Malcolm X did not fly by. Okay, fine. How about The Great Escape then? My point was personally, Gandhi doesn't make me want more. I, I feel the length, and that's coming from someone who loves long movies. But I don't think this movie's all bad. I mean, I do own it. Um, in fact, the version that I own has Attenborough giving a, a brief preamble to the film, and his final words are something to the effect of ultimately a film should be engaging and entertaining. I hope that it is just that, and I think it is. Roger Ebert's claim that it serves as a history lesson is mostly correct, but it is worth watching this historical dramatization, if only for Ben Kingsley's performance. Ultimately, Attenborough prospered through an arduous production with Gandhi, and the result is certainly better than average, but not to the level of best director. And I think the Academy went with Gandhi because it's kind of hard to go against him. <laughs> What the hell is going on? I don't know, sir. The agent got a telegram. 
when it just said he is coming. We gave the time of the train. Who the hell is he? I don't know, sir. Some men change their times. One man changed the world for all time. My name is Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Well, whoever you are, we don't want you here. I suggest you get back on that train before it leaves. They seem to want me. Columbia Pictures presents a Richard Attenborough film, Gandhi. 100,000 Englishmen simply cannot control 350 million Indians if those Indians refuse to cooperate. The story of one man whose voice spoke out for millions. To gain independence, we must prove worthy of it. From his humble beginnings. You're an ambitious man, Mr. Gandhi. I hope not. To his ultimate triumph. He was the conscience of all mankind. Where there's injustice, I've always believed in fighting. I will fast as a penance for my part in arousing such emotions, and I will not stop until they stop. His torment ended a nation's suffering. I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. His greatest weapon was peace. In this cause, I too am prepared to die. There is no cause for which I am prepared to kill. I want to change their minds, not kill them for weaknesses we all possess. We're required to stop it, and stop it we will. If you take my husband, I intend to speak in his place. I want to document coldly, rationally, what is being done here. I believe non-cooperation with evil is a duty and that British rule of India is evil. Nevertheless, it is my duty to sentence you to six years in prison. Since your arrest, the riots have hardly stopped. If we obtain our freedom by murder and bloodshed, I want no part of it. It went on and on into the night. Whatever moral ascendancy the West held was lost here today. Poverty is the worst form of violence. But do you really believe you could use non-violence against someone like Hitler? What you cannot do is accept injustice from Hitler or anyone. You must make the injustice visible. Gandhi. They're calling you Mahatma. Great soul. Starring Martin Sheen. What if they don't arrest you? What if they don't react at all? Something for your notebook. The function of a civil resistor is to provoke response. Sir John Gielgud. Mr. Gandhi will find it takes a great deal more than a pinch of salt to bring down the British Empire. Edward Fox. My intention was to inflict a lesson that would have an impact throughout all India. Ian Charlson. What Mr. Gandhi has forced us to do is ask questions about ourselves. Candace Bergen. You're a temptress. Just an admirer. Nothing's more dangerous. Trevor Howard, John Mills, Rohini Hatangadi, 
and introducing Ben Kingsley as Mohandas Gandhi. I am a Muslim and a Hindu and a Christian and a Jew and so are all of you. He offered the world a way out of madness. Men honored him. Women loved him. An empire feared him. A nation worshipped him. Long live Mahatma Gandhi! Albert Einstein said, generations to come will scarce believe that such a one as this, ever in flesh and blood, walked upon this earth. Gandhi, a world event. A, a, a great man, one of the last great men, and I thoroughly enjoyed the film, all three hours of it. I didn't feel the length of it like you did, and uh, and I had never really read in depth about Gandhi's life. I knew the basics, but the dramatization that was brought to life on the screen through Kingsley's uh, performance was outstanding, and I really enjoyed watching it. It's one of the better biographical films, to be sure. I think we're kind of coming up with a theme of this season, starting with episode one, Director Jeremy Cordy came on and talked about the Best Director versus Best Picture award. And with the Best Director, it's style over substance. And Best Picture, it's the business of it all. Yes, it's very impressive in Gandhi that 300,000 extras were there the day for Gandhi's funeral. But it wasn't Richard Attenborough that was wrangling the 300,000 extras. I totally agree that Gandhi, well, I can not totally agree, but I can stomach the fact that Gandhi was the best picture winner of the year. But when we're looking at best director of the year, I think stylistically, we need to take a little bit more in-depth look at what other directors presented that year. Absolutely. I agree with with the sentiments of Lee as well. You know, it's, it's a good movie and Kingsley's performance is fantastic. But just because you love the man or the story of the man doesn't mean that the director brought anything new or interesting to the medium. All right. Game on. So just... For your own edification, some of the uh, other awards that were given out that year for Best Director. Nicholas Meyer walked away with Best Director at the Saturn Awards for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Attenborough cleaned up at the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, and the DGAs. A couple movies in there that we're not going to be talking about are Missing and uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. (laughs) As far as the Oscars were concerned, Attenborough obviously won. The other four nominees were Wolf Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot, Steven Spielberg for E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Sidney Pollack for Tootsie, and Sidney Lumet for The Verdict. But before we get to those, we got uh, quite a decent list of movies to talk about that weren't nominated uh, in any award show capacity that I'm familiar with. I love got them in got them in alphabetical order, but I guess we can hop around if you want, or we can just go in order. I love that you guys do this too, not just taking away the the Oscar from the winner, but actually even considering that some of the nominees didn't belong in there and maybe some of these other films should have at least been nominated. I like this. It's also an opportunity too for us to to, to just put a spotlight on some of these movies from 1982 that we're telling our tens of listeners, hey, this was good. 
So if you never saw this one, you should try and check it out. So alphabetically, first is Don Bluth for The Secret of Nim. You might know Don Bluth's work with Disney in the 60s and 70s, and then he broke off, started making some of his own stuff. Secret of Nim, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. What else is a Bluth? American Tale. You can see a lot of the same animation styles if you watch one of these and then say rewatch the Disney's Robin Hood. But obviously this would never have been up for Best Director. But I think if the Academy had begun recognizing animated films a little earlier, Bluth would have an Oscar. Um, Secret of Nim's a dark little story adapted from Robert C. O'Brien's novel, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. And the small scale world that the mice and rats all populate just fascinated me as a kid well before Toy Story. And, you know, the plot was a lot darker than any Disney movies I'd ever seen. It was either this or Charlotte's Web where I learned that not just bad guys die. So that's one of those ones to shine a spotlight on. It's a good one. And I love this one as a kid too. And because it was darker, you know, we were used to all of the Snow White, Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, the Disney kind of films that were always happy-go-lucky. But this one was seemed a little more grown up and it was very intriguing in the dark creepy mysterious world of of the rats was it drew me in well alphabetically that takes us to john carpenter one of my favorite american directors of this era for his work on my favorite movie of his the thing 12 men have just discovered something for 100,000 years it was buried in the snow and ice now it has found a place to live inside where no one can see it or hear it or feel it i know i'm human some of you are still human this thing doesn't want to show itself it wants to hide inside an imitation it'll fight if it has to but it's vulnerable out in the open if it takes us over then it has no more enemies nobody left to kill it and then it's one you guys gonna listen to gary we can beat one of those things I don't know. I think it's just movies that take place in isolation. Alien, Predator, The Thing. And I love that. And those three are probably my top three favorite horror films. It's like scary fun without being the level of disturbing that Hereditary or Midsommar might be. I've never watched Midsommar because Hereditary fucked me up so bad. And all three of the movies that I mentioned have memorable practical effects. But despite all the love Xenomorphs and the Hunter get, I think the effects of the thing are arguably the best. Carpenter Pace... Is that is that it? That's your retort. Yeah, I'm just throwing a what in there. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's the scene with the it's the guy that they think has a heart attack, or maybe he does really have a heart attack. But he's on the he's on the operating table, and the dude's like trying to get into his clothes, and he undoes his clothes, and then all of a sudden the dude's whole like stomach and chest open up into teeth and bite the surgeon's like arms off at the elbow, and then he splits. And the like head is hanging by, that's so cool. So cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. Xenomorph's awesome. I would say the Predator is the least impressive. And even the Predator is amazing. 
Carpenter paces the film pretty slowly at first, but boy, once it gets going, it does not stop. The fear just just compounds until you know the audience suspects that every single one of these characters, no matter how earnest they seem, is the thing. And I'm jealous of people that have never seen it. But I have to say, even after six or seven watches, the surprises still shock and delight. Even if I know they're coming, I'm thinking of that the scene where they test everybody's blood. The only genres that receive less Oscar love than horror are sci-fi and fantasy. And if you mix those genres together, I good luck. But horrors take home makeup or art direction awards. Sometimes they get writing or on the very rare occasion, acting awards. But other than Silence of the Lambs, no other legendary horror film has won Best Director. Yeah, it's a great film. And it, it builds suspense really well. But I, I got to completely disagree with you on the practical effects. I, I think they're fine in the thing. And I think that based on what the creature can do, uh, they work but they look really dated and corny to me. Whereas Predator looks like it could have been made last year. Same thing with the Alien films. I think those are highly sophisticated looking creatures. And and I hate you for saying that the Predator was the least want, least of your favorites or whatever, because uh, that is still my favorite action film of all time. Hey, did, did Carpenter write the thing? Was that his own brainchild? Because no. I, I always really admire when a, a director can create something completely out of thin air rather than adapting from source material. No, it's based on a novella called Who Goes There, which was written by John Campbell. And it was actually adapted into a film once before in 1959 as The Thing from Another World, which the opening title card, which is like, I still am not 100% sure because whenever somebody explains something intricate, I have to see it. If somebody explains it in writing and they don't explain it like for a dumb shit like me. Um, it doesn't make sense, but it involved like burning plastic, I guess. Can you picture it when the thing like appears on the screen and then kind of fizzles away? Yeah. That was done to mimic the exact same effect for the title card and the thing from another world, apparently. Well, it was a cool idea for, for a movie. It was a very scary film and I enjoyed it a lot. Not as much as Predator and Alien. This is one that I would say like people should go back and see if they never see it. If not just because of Kurt Russell and you know the performance that he gives. If you love Kurt Russell, I think this is one of his top five best performances that I would put down. What I love about the film though is it immediately sends you you said it was a slow boil. The movie begins with a man in a helicopter trying to hunt down a very precious looking Alaskan dog. And then that man is eventually shot to death. Like to me, this film grabs you right from the beginning where you're like, well, why was he trying to kill the dog? And then there is also the horrifying scene where all the dogs are then stuck alone. That to me is my favorite scene of the movie. It's just the dogs acting and how they mm-hmm. shot it of the one dog in the middle and all of them kind of just giving a leery eye. And you're like, are they going to destroy the dog or is the dog going to destroy them? And good God, the dog trying to like rip through the gate to get away. It's heartbreaking. It's horrific. I think that one kind of unsettled critics to the point probably where they started to bury the movie but this is definitely a watch for the 21st century but not best director yeah not best director next on the list this one's gonna probably be a minute is amy heckerling for fast times at ridgemont high in my research i found that roger ebert compared this one to porky's which also came out in 82 so porky's is kind of always been one of those movies with a pretty shitty reputation that I'd never seen before. I knew it was just like a bunch of kids trying to get laid movie. So I checked it out because it was on Amazon Prime. Uh, And with all due respect to the dead, Ebert had his head up his ass when he wrote his review for Fast Times. Porky's isn't in the same ballpark as Fast Times. It's not even the same fucking sport. Can I talk to you for a sec? 
to announce. Stacy, I'm doing business. Call me tonight, all right? No, I I gotta talk to you now. Okay. Don't go away. Look at him. I hope this is important, you know, because I could be blowing a big deal. Mike, I just... I just want you to know that I'm pregnant. How do you know it's mine? I mean, we only did it once. I haven't been with anybody else. I know it's yours. Jesus. I mean, it was your idea. You wanted to do it. I. You wanted it more than I did. No. Take that back. All right, all right. Take it back. Look, we got to do something about it. I mean, uh, we got to get an abortion. My brother Art got his girlfriend one once. It's simple. I mean, it's no big deal. Yeah, I, I got that plan. Um, it's going to cost $150 at the free clinic. Doesn't sound free to me. <laughs> I suppose you want me to pay for it. Half, okay? And a ride to the clinic? $75 and a ride. In 79, uh, writer-director Cameron Crowe, now writer-director, back then he was an out-of-work writer, got the idea to go undercover as a high school student and record his observations. He secured a deal with Simon & Schuster just based on his idea alone and then enrolled at Claremont High in San Diego. The result was uh, his book, Fast Times at Richmond High, colon, A True Story. The book was optioned before it even came out, but Universal really had no faith in it since there weren't any big-name stars. Of course, now watching the film many years later, it looks like a pretty good cast. Director Amy Heckerling was instrumental in choosing the actors, but interestingly enough, casting director Don Phillips, who also helped Richard Linklater cast Days and Confused and helped Kevin Smith cast Mallrats, was at work here as well. I, I wish Hollywood would cast more unknowns. I really do. The way the way Dazed and Confused did, the way Mallrats did, and the way Fast Times at Ridgemont High did. I'm actually dealing with this personally with one of my projects is that they are approaching name actor after name actor after name actor for one of my low budget horror films. And one of the name actors just said no, which jostled like the financier. And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, and I was like, look, this is a 500k budget film. I was like, it doesn't matter if there's like, if there's a star in it, it becomes the star's film, right? Where if you find somebody kind of like, I'm sure Michael Wolf did something before Hereditary. But now, you know, when I saw Michael Wolf in the trailer for Old, I was like, oh my gosh, it's that guy from Hereditary. When you find these people from a very young age, like Sean Penn, every single time now we see Sean Penn, we think of Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And that becomes an ageless thing that continues on 40 years later like we are now. But Hollywood is very concerned with making their money back. They will only do things for profit. And putting stars in, they can pre-sale the movie. So they already make their money back by before the movies even get into the theaters. Take, for instance, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, Nicolas Cage, all these people that you see now that are big names that you're like, why are they in these movies that are just going to streaming services? It's because Bruce Willis will make $6 million to show up to set for two days. But 
if you put Bruce Willis in a movie, you could sell the pre-sale, the distribution rights to China for $10 million because they know they're at least going to make that over there. Boom, you already made your money back that you paid Bruce Willis and $4 million on top of that that went towards your $10 million budget. So this is Hollywood playing its game. And this is why we're getting these kind of like crap movies because they could just put a star in it and it doesn't matter what the quality is. That's my rant there. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, a, it's akin to the the old school rockers who are still touring, who's, who can't sing anymore, who look like they're being propped up. A stiff wind would blow them over and they're still, you know, they're charging $90 a ticket. It's embarrassing. It's like the Who. The Who should have retired years ago. Well, luck- luckily, the studio didn't have much faith in this movie. So they kind of, for the most part, I'll get into a little bit of it, but for the most part, they, they were able to fly under the radar. And- just as an aside, did you know that Sean Penn's contract was offer only? He refused, refused to audition. He said, I've got, I've got the character, but I'm not going to show it to you until you hire me. Huh. Yep. What did he do before this? To be honest, I can't, couldn't <laughs> tell you. I couldn't tell you. Uh, taps? What year was Taps? Is that 81? 81, yeah. Okay. So yeah, he did Taps. But let's talk about Hackerling right. as much as possible. After David Lynch turned down the chance to direct this one, Crow and producers saw Hackerling's short film, Getting It Over With, which I couldn't find online to watch. Uh, but Crow said that it, when they watched it, it was unanimous. This is somebody who understands kids from a kid's point of view. So this was to be Hackerling's first feature film, but she came in swinging nonetheless. Uh, she thought the script had enormous potential, but insisted on revising the script alongside author Cameron Crow. She wanted to undo the changes made mostly by studio heads. Um, she also insisted the Crow be on set every day so that their collaboration could continue through production, which right there is, is pretty remarkable. A director who is desiring of a writer's input. But So Heckerling didn't obviously have final cut and the studios fucked with her a little bit. But according to the commentary track, studio heads were more worried about the best little whorehouse in Texas. So Fast Times got to fly under the radar. The studio did force a couple of edits. One of the sex scenes had to be cut to avoid an X rating because it showed uh, Mike Damone's dick. Uh, the football game needed to be reshot because there wasn't really any violence. So they brought in stuntmen for Forrest Whitaker to destroy. And Heckerling admits, she's like, I was so out of my element there because she's not a sports person. Um, and the epilogue, where they are now, epilogue ending was the studio's idea too. The studio heads wanted another dumbass lowbrow comedy with lots of TNA and no heart. But Heckerling managed to squeeze out something so much more meaningful that still holds up today and makes Roger Ebert look like a dummy. Again, all respect to the deceased. The Blu-ray has a commentary track with Heckerling and Crow, and it's pretty cool to hear him wax nostalgic about the making of this movie and share anecdotes and trivia. In fact, I'm surprised they never worked together again. Uh, they got real chemistry. For you real nerds out there, I recommend it. Totally worth a listen. I think this and Dazed and Confused are really the only two movies about young people that are worth a damn. Maybe the best two movies about young people. Maybe not the only ones worth a damn. We came of age in the 90s and no one's really made something about our era that's even close to the caliber of these two movies. Clerks came the closest. Clueless, also directed by Heckerling, interestingly enough, is good, but not really representative of the average 90s kids, kind of a send up of future Paris Hilton's. But I actually really like Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and I'll defend that shit all day. I remember one of these episodes, you were like, why do you want to talk about Superbad? Other than the corny like cop shit in Superbad, I think I really heard myself and my friends coming out through that movie. I think that's a good representation. Well, in, anyway, in the end, I think our lack of transcendent cinematic 
cinematic representation doesn't really matter because the eras of Fast Times and Dazed or even the Sandlot aren't our eras, but still resonate because kids are kids and our experiences cross those boundaries. I eagerly look forward to watching this film. Of all the films that you gave me to watch for our cast this time, this was the one that I anticipated enjoying the most. And I can say without reservation, it fell utterly short of my expectations. It felt like nothing more than a voyeur with a camera following kids around recording the creepiest and most embarrassing parts of their banal little existences. It, most of the characters in the film had no personality at all. And there, there's just, there's no story whatsoever. It's just events happening. Random events that have little effect on, on the characters themselves. And none of the characters seem to show any growth with the exception of the one young girl. And the gravity of her situation is, is just barely scratched. It's, I don't know, five, 10 minutes out of the entire film. I think this movie is the reason why there are so many other high school TV shows like, you know, Saved by the Bell and movies where teens are, are portrayed as slapstick and stupid and without any real thoughts in their heads. And maybe that's why it's held in such high regard. I guess we don't think of our youth uh, as being capable of deep thought or great works. And that's why when I hold this film up to Breakfast Club, I don't think they're even in the same ballpark. Breakfast Club tried very hard to make its characters believable. I don't know. It created empathy in me for each of those kids. I want. I wanted to help the young people in the world realize their place, and uh, you know, not follow them around with a camera lens. Breakfast Club is so melodramatic. Fast Times feels far more real in that sense. There is a little bit of melodrama, but it's in the perfect spots. And second of all, man, clumsy lovemaking, self-gratification, I don't know, sounds pretty realistic to me. But Oh, come on. Realistic? There were scenes that were so unbelievable in that film, they were laughably stupid. The forgiveness scene between uh, but the nice kid and then the one who acts like a- Mike Damone? Yeah, Damone, Damone, yeah. The confrontation between them starts off as something, ends as- it's just like, a, I'm sorry. And that's it. And it just, I don't know, man. It just, it just but you didn't felt really, so. Yeah. Well. What about, okay, fine. Even that one. What about the scene where Mr. Hand goes to Spicoli's bedroom and teaches him all the stuff that he didn't learn on the night of the, of the, the dance. I mean, just, it was ridiculous. Listen, it was, I enjoyed it once. It was funny, but it was very slapstick. It was very, it was lacking in heart by and large. No, and uh, you're dead wrong. Okay, fine. I think it's it's disingenuous for Ebert to compare this to Porky's, but I think you could compare this a little bit closer to Animal say, House. Uh, maybe an Animal House. I was going to just bring up the American Pie analogy. This doesn't tell me a whole lot about high school. This tells me a lot about high schoolers dealing with sex in high school, where something like Days and Confused tells me about high schoolers being lost on what they're going to do post-graduation. I prefer Days and Confused 100 times to one over Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Me too. But that's because I prefer the message that it's delivering more. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. I, I could see that. It, it is very heavily... It's, it's interesting because... Jennifer Jason Lee's storyline is the draw for me. Doesn't mean I don't like Spicoli. Doesn't mean I don't like the the scene where Forrest Whitaker thinks that the rival high school fucked his car up, so he goes ballistic. Uh, I, I like the whole movie, but it's Jennifer Jason Lee's story about a kid who's got somebody that she looks up to who is 
trying to school her in the ways of being a sexual woman. And she tries it, and it's pretty clear that really all she wants is companionship and love. If we're saying like who we followed, mine would be Judge Reinhold. I followed his character probably for Fast Times. Yeah, he and he and Jennifer Jason Lee are the, the best two characters. It probably all depends on your high school experience too, you know? Like what, yeah, what your high school is about. If your high school experience kind of mirrored Fast Times or Ridgemont High, which I don't necessarily think mine did, other than I was kind of like Judge Reinhold trying to hold down a job and everything that also kind of made me look like a dork during high school. Yeah. Yeah, I was I think I was more like Jennifer Jason Lee. I was I was worried about the wrong things in high school. So maybe that's why it speaks to me. Okay. All right. Jim Henson and Frank Oz for the Dork Crystal. In a place outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the dark crystal. I'll field this one. This is one of my favorite films of all time. This is Henson's magnum opus, without a doubt. And the amount of work that he and Frank Oz put into directing this film together is, it's staggering. The fact that they pulled it off with nothing but hand-built sets, props, and characters, and practical effects is an achievement you're never going to see again in cinema. Every single person involved in this film worked their asses off. And the result is a standalone universe that not only feels real, but it's a world I would almost rather inhabit than Earth. It's ancient and lush and beautiful and mysterious and wild and frightening. It's like a mini LOTR just for us kids. And as a kid, I don't think there was a movie that enraptured me more than The Dark Crystal did. As soon as I started collecting DVDs back around 2000, this was one of my very first purchases. And it holds up today. I still watch it on my Blu-ray in 1080p, and I love every square inch of imagery and every word of dialogue and every note from the score. Someday, I, I will likely own a small fluffy dog, and I shall name him Fizzgig. Henson died way too soon. And it would be amazing to see what a visionary like him would have done in the technology that we have of today. But sadly, kids' films are not generally recognized. They're certainly made a lot and capitalized on. They're, they're big money makers. But how often is this story about kids or made for kids recognized with more important Oscars like actor, director, or picture? I'll defer to you, to you amateur film scholars. Has it ever happened? Oliver or Oliver? Because it has the exclamation point yeah. at the end. <laughs> I mean, you could make a case for Sound of Music, but yeah, other than being nominated for the top awards, especially since they changed Best Picture from five to ten, yeah, these movies never walk away with, with gold. It is a very interesting question, though. Yeah, I can't think of, I mean, Avatar? <laughs> was that for adult? I don't even know what who Avatar was for. <laughs> no, I remember when Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best, Best mm-hmm. Picture, and everyone was like, whoa! Yeah, and I don't think it's happened since as a as a animated film. Oh yeah, ever since, like I said, since they went from five to ten nominees. Oh, okay. Yeah, like Toy Story's been in there. Soul okay. was just in there last year. It's Pixar, right? Yeah, nine yeah. times out of ten. Yeah. But we're talking about Jim Henson and and best director. I think the last kids movie that had a best director up for it <laughs> in 1995, Chris Noonan was nominated for Babe. 
and that's yeah it's not it's it's usually family films i guess would be a better way of putting it not necessarily kids films sure i don't know maybe they're synonymous well anyway i i feel that proves my point going back to fast times about our culture doesn't really care what kids think or what they appreciate it's not important i also kind of want to point out before we get into it there is another director this year that i think is phenomenal at directing kids movies and needs to get back to it Mm, i bet i know who that is well i respect your take i think films for specific age groups is one of those lost categories of of inclusiveness that gets overshadowed by ethnicity and sexual orientation i also think that you know we've touched on it already there's lots of stuff out there for everybody and and kids are definitely included there but not much of it seems to be very good although you watch more of these kinds of films than i do so i'll take your word for it i also respect the movie i think it speaks volumes that in japan and france this was the number one movie of the year. I definitely don't love it like you do, but I am all about the late great Jim Henson. Did anybody notice the clear Fraggle Rock set when Jen and Kira go underground with the like little minor dudes? Yeah, very it was, similar. It was when he was working on this movie, and it was specifically that that whole set and that like race of beings that inspired him to make Fraggle Rock. Fraggle Rock was January '83. Oh wow! I guess I thought it was later than that. The first time I watched this film was for this podcast. It does break one of the rules that kind of has been like implanted in my head of no voiceovers. And I think the opening voiceover goes on for 15 to 20 minutes before we hear like a character actually speak. So that kind of put me in a dark place for the dark crystal, but I don't have that childhood nostalgia that you do. You, I mean, the craftsmanship of this movie cannot be denied. And when we talk about movies that are made nowadays and our reliance on CGI and whatnot, I think movies like The Dark Crystal do completely stand out with their practical effects and what Jim Hansen was able to do with what he had going for him. But yeah, the storytelling of this irritated me. Tell me about the storytelling. You mean that you talk back to the voiceover? The-, the Yeah, the slow, drawn-out opening voiceover. It took me probably about two tra- – like, and this could have been completely my fault. Like, as I sat down, I was like, I'm sitting down for a Jim Henson Muppet movie. You know, like, this is going to be loud and in my face, and this is completely not that. This is completely not what I was expecting. And so perhaps I wasn't in the right frame of mind to intake this because the opening is almost like you're being told a story before you actually get into the movie. Sure. Right? Uh, Yeah. And I I think it's very, very similar to what Lord of the Rings did. That whole opening sequence with the voiceover from um, Galadriel, uh, you sort of need that to to get a sense of where we're going with the story. I'm surprised that that's the thing that bugged you about the film. I watched this with you when we were kids, and I remember liking it as kids. And God, I can't remember the last time I watched it. And I was like, it was like watching it for the first time again. Like none of it stuck with me, except for no, no, fist gig, you stay here, doy leg. You're shitting all over my childhood right now. You know this? (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. So here's another one. Alan J. Pacula for Sophie's Choice. This is probably, you know, Meryl Streep's crowning achievement. It was a season of delight in a place called Brooklyn. The season of Sophie. Of Sophie and Nathan. And a young man called Stingo. I love that the piece... Look 
together, drawing ever closer to the mystery of Sophie, ever closer to her unthinkable secret. Sophie. Oh, please, don't go. Don't go away from me, please. I told you that the only thing I absolutely demand of you, the only single thing, is fidelity. Sophie, why do you lie to me? Oh, the truth. The truth. I don't even know what is the truth. All these lies I have told. Tell me why. There are so many things you don't understand. So many things that I can't tell you. Explanation, please! Is this thing? Explain! Explain! So beautiful. How'd you get to be so beautiful? Sophie. How can anyone imagine that he knows her? Beyond the innocent, the romantic, the sensual, and the unthinkable, there are secrets we have yet to imagine. One of them is Sophie's choice. And for her performance as the secretive Sophie, she won her very first Best Actress Oscar. And let me tell you, it was deserved. In fact, it's an award that this show won't ever fuck with. That's a promise. If you've never seen this one, I think it's worth one watch, at least. It also has Kevin Klein in his feature film debut, playing Sophie's lover Nathan, a very excitable and very troubled dude. And then there's Peter McNichol who plays Stingo, the protagonist. And his casting is about as nebulous as the character's stupid name. But anyway, other than a couple of international awards, Pacula was given very little praise for his direction, I suppose because Streep was so damn good, all the awards show gatekeepers assumed he simply turned the camera on, let her do her thing. And actually kind of does exactly that during the film's most powerful moments when Sophie's porcelain visage fills the, almost the entire frame, her pained gaze meeting ours as she tells us the choice she was forced to make, which if you don't know, is worth the price of a mission. The rest of the movie's kind of just filmed like a stage play or a one-camera BBC show, but for the third act alone, I think Pacula deserved a little more recognition. It's certainly more entertaining than Tootsie. And actually, as you were talking, <laughs> I had the exact same opinion that it's very surprising. I think if you don't even know that Sophie's Choice was a movie, it's definitely a saying in our present day of having a hard decision. To me, this movie captures the era that, especially at the beginning, that these characters are living in much better than any iteration of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. But you are right. When it comes down to performances, Meryl Streep's is one for the ages. I know Lawrence wasn't able to see Sophie's Choice before we were recording. Really wish I had. This this might be one of the greatest performances ever on screen. And it's mainly because Meryl Streep is so good with, you know, not any makeup, just with inflections of her voice that you forget that it's Meryl Streep. She is so endearing. Kevin Klein, I would probably say this is his best performance captured on film. It is a really good movie. And this, I think, Pacula <laughs> should be, uh, should have been nominated for best director of the year. What would it's you like, take? I almost want to talk about this film deeper, but I don't want to spoil this movie. I feel yeah. like people, and I don't want to like praise it too much because it might not live up to like what we're talking about. But this film, I think, is a must watch for our audience. It's one of those movies that deals with longing very well. It's very much about longing, at least 
for Peter McNichols' character. I don't want to spoil it's, it either. Do you see the the Great Gatsby connection though? Oh, with, sure, especially I, at the it, beginning. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's clearly it's based on a book and clearly written by somebody who was setting out to write his version of the Great American Novel. Uh, even the movie itself. It's got that dreaded narration, which, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I know you brought it up with the Dark Crystal, but it does. I mean, it's got all that narration. It just feels very novelistic. I don't think you could have adapted it and made it feel otherwise. Yeah, I mean, there's there's great films that have narration. I, you know, Stand By Me comes up where you kind of just go, well, I guess. Just narration has always been described to writers as a lazy form. Narration and montages are lazy forms of writing is all it is. To me, that feels like a cliche, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. So Martin Scorsese had a movie this year as well, and I'm sure it'll irritate Emily to hear, but I'm sure she doesn't fucking listen to this show anyway. I included Scorsese in the discussion because he really should always be in the discussion. He made the movie uh, King of Comedy, starring Robert De Niro, Sandra Bernhard, and Jerry Lewis, among others. The film's about obsessive worship of stardom and the lengths that a driven person will go to be famous, adored, appreciated. Even though the title promises humor, the last are less haha and more derisive. De Niro plays Rupert Pupkin, probably the greatest worst character name in the history of film. There are definite parallels between Pupkin's story and Travis Bickle's story from Taxi Driver, right down to the cheery epilogue, validating both characters' instabilities and making them a hero or a star. De Niro plays pathetic pretty convincingly, but manages to still be relatable, which is a mark of a great actor. We all sort of secretly want to be famous and and then harbor a special self-loathing for that desire. Most of us are on the outside of glamour, looking in with longing eyes. Some of us believe we're gifted with the talent to make it if someone would only give us a chance. Pretty much all of us are deluded. Sandra Bernhard most of all. Her performance is inspired as a psycho starfucker, which might be redundant. Uh, I know I criticized Scorsese's female casting choices in the past, but Bernhard was an unlikely choice and the perfect one. The reason I wanted to shine a spotlight on this one is not just because it's Scorsese, but because Todd Phillips' recent film, The Joker, clearly drew a great deal from not only Taxi Driver, but The King of Comedy. So before I watched The Joker, which I'll begrudgingly admit is pretty well made, I made sure to check out King of Comedy, which I had not yet seen. So until the last few years, it really couldn't be found on any streaming services for free anyway. Nor do I ever remember seeing this one on television back when that was a thing. But if you are a fan of Scorsese, I recommend looking into it if you can. And what I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, in a Martin Scorsese picture, the king of comedy. And moving on, the actually wrapping up the final film before we get to the actual Oscar nominated is Personal Best, which uh, was screenwriter Robert Towns' directorial debut. 
I find the research and writing phases of this podcast to be the most personally rewarding. I mean, when I have the time, I love watching movies I've never seen before, revisiting movies from way back. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise that regardless of the Oscar that we're snatching back, it's easier to rewatch movies I've already seen and kind of dust off my already existing opinion. But not only is it more challenging to watch movies I've never seen, but I think it's more rewarding. Spro Claudine was your revelation in episode four of this season. So I'm going to call personal best my revelation uh, for this episode. I got the idea to watch this one from Siskel and Ebert's best of 1982 episode, which I saw on YouTube. May God bless the folks who uploaded that. Both lovable curmudgeons gave this film thumbs up and put it on their best of the year lists. Personal best is a sports drama about romantic love between competitors and making the choice between being the best or being a decent human being. How did it feel going to the games, winning two gold medals? Would you lie to me and tell me it was worth it if it wasn't? What about you? Can you go to Moscow next summer? I want to know exactly what's wrong. Look around you. Look at everybody. Now imagine how many bodies you all buried to get here. Games. The javelin, the discus, the shot, their weapons. Don't kid yourself. You're here to kill anybody that gets in your way and all the rest is boom. I could have been a man's coach. Do you actually think that Chuck Noll has to worry that Franco Harris is going to cry because Terry Bradshaw won't talk to him? Jack Lambert can't play because Mel Blunt hurt his feelings. Lynn Swan is pregnant. Rocky Blyer forgot his Tampax. <laughs> I don't know what scares you more. Getting beat by Tori Skinner or beating. The three principals are Chris, Mariel Hemingway, Tori, Patrice Donnelly, and Terry, a already old Scott Glenn. Tori is a well-established track and field athlete, proud, strong, and talented. Chris is an up-and-comer that Tori takes under her wing, and almost immediately the two women begin an adjacent romance, and their scenes together are frank, fair, realistic depictions of two people falling for each other. doesn't matter they're both women, and the film doesn't present it as an aberration of any kind. And then there's Terry, Scott Glenn. Um, their coach. He's a dick. Instead of using Chris and Tori's mutual love and respect to not only their advantage, but his team's advantage, he chooses instead to drive a wedge between them to make them see each other as competitors instead of allies, even going so far as to use his power over Chris to try and initiate a sexual relationship with her. Coolest aspect of this film, I think, is the research that Town must have done in order to write, not to mention direct and produce the film. I've been on both sides of the track and field world as an athlete and a coach, and I know only a fraction of all there is to learn about the training, technique, diet and everything else. This is quite a directorial debut for town and one that I'd never heard of. And I'm very happy I saw. Yeah, I'll check it out. Is it better or where like, so track and field movies just are not my bread and butter. Is it better or worse? Would you say than chariots of fire? Oh, it's 10 times better. I can't stand chariots okay. of fire. <laughs> Neither can I. No, and that's no. That's kind of what I like. I looked at this on the list and I was like, Ugh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's no, it's I think it's very engaging. I I wasn't bored at all. 
and it moves along at a pretty good clip. Nice. I like Muriel Hemingway. I'll give this one. I'll seek this out in the interim. All right. So we probably left a few out, like Pink Floyd's The Wall, Conan the Barbarian, First Blood, Silent Rage, which I couldn't even get through, Night Shift, Poltergeist, Diner. But uh, Diner. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Did you like that? At first I did. At first it was one of those movies like we we're talking about where like, I think you said it with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where all of a sudden you're like, I recognize all these people in this film. And you start getting really excited about it. And then the film just starts to drag. And so I found myself, I think I've mentioned it where, you know, if you don't grab me in the first 30 minutes, I start doing chores. It starts to become background music. And that's kind of how Diner was. But I was super excited for the first, like, probably 15 to 20 minutes. And then I just didn't understand necessarily what the story was going to be other than the fact Mickey Rourke, I, I don't think I realized that a young Mickey Rourke, that Ryan Gosling pretty much stole Mickey Rourke's shtick. <laughs> from that movie and then he was the only character that i could really follow what his story was and then it wrapped up so simply in the end i was like what the fuck was this oh big spender come on hey listen Teddy. if you guys want in on this i'm gonna tell you now there's shaving points in this game you heard the shaving match how do you know Look, I know this is no bullshit tip. How do you know? I heard about your tips before costing 50 bucks. How do you know? No way. No. What's your, what's your resource? Don't get in. You listen to me, they are shaving points on this game. Do you want in or not? They're definitely shaving points? You feel uh, secure? Who's the guy? Who's the guy? Well, then why do you always get to ask Because I don't know who questions. the guy is. I don't know if I am. You trust him? Let me make it 15 because... Make it 15. Wait, what do you... Wait for a second. you a question. Let me, you don't, make it 20. If you're really sure, make it 20 bucks. Go don't do it, Bordell. I'm, I'm telling you, I lost 50 can, bucks last game. All right. You guys are talking. You're all on the subject. Can you, can you quit? 15 bucks would be good now. Bordell, who do you pick? Sinatra or Matt? <laughs> would you Would you just let that die, please? It's important to me. It's, it's annoying it's me, okay? In my You've life. been asking that opinion. question to every mo that walks in here. Okay, well, would you just forget Well, maybe, it? maybe I have something to gain from the answer. Did you ever think of that? Maybe I have something to gain. What does it matter? Let the man speak. Let the man speak. Speak. Presley. <laughs> okay, there you go. There is the definitive answer. So not your Mathis, it's Preston. Fine. You're okay, sick. there. You got your... You, you feel better? I mean, your did opinion, you learn something there? You've gone like two steps below in my, my uh, book. <laughs> Once again. I, I guess you're full. <laughs> I put that one up there with like the big chill and breaking away and all those other movies like our parents watched with that same nostalgicness that we might watch things like Clerks or Dazed and Confused. It, it didn't do anything for me. Right. As we shake our fists to the to the entertainment of today, <laughs> our parents would be like, well, you should have watched Diner. So maybe we're, we're finding our niche audience right now. The millennials. Well, that brings us to the the Oscar nominees for Best Director of 1983, oh, but they're the movies of 1982. Alphabetically, we begin with Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot. Das Boot, this movie does not deserve a Best Director nod, let alone a win. It was terribly repetitive. 
There's only so many stock shots of U-boats diving or surfacing that I can take. I didn't even finish this film for lack of interest. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, I'm with you, but I'll take some of the blame for my feelings. I put this off until just this morning, which was my first mistake, and then I threw on the 208-minute director's cut, which was my second mistake. I threw the towel in probably like 110 minutes in. I was enjoying a lot of the performances, but I just wasn't in the mood for a submarine World War II film about disillusioned Nazis, and I don't know if I ever will be. Enough said. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we could just move on. Nobody's going to cry proudly to us about Das Boot not getting its just desserts on this show. So moving on, when we were talking about earlier how there was a director nominated this year that I think is a fantastic kid movie director that needs to return to his roots. It's Steven Spielberg, and he was nominated this year for E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and I think this might be one of his, his best. In 1975... He directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T. the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival. The search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret, the love, the warning, the signal. Mystery, a danger, the intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment, the hope, the connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Well, it's undeniably magical, but for my money, the best early Spielberg is Jaws and Raiders. I don't love when he fucks with aliens. Like, I think Close Encounters is kind of boring. I think War of the Worlds feels just like Jurassic Park with aliens, and I'm sure I'm going to take shit for this one, but I'll give the first half of Crystal Skull a B, but the second half is caca. But don't the effects ruin it for you for Raiders? No. What do you mean? They don't? Like, are they hokey to me now? Yeah. No. No, God, no. They're great. No. They totally hold up. Better than the thing, anyway. Wow. (laughs) I think it's cool, too, that if it wasn't for Raiders, this movie would have never been made because... Spielberg and Harrison Ford's late ex-wife, Melissa Matheson, developed the script while on location in Tunisia filming Raiders. I I know this movie's beloved, and it's a fun watch, maybe even more now that I'm an adult, actually, but best director? No. If Spielberg deserved an early Oscar for directing, it was for pulling a 
treasure chest of gems from the wreckage that should have been Jaws. Yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I think as far as stylistically goes, and then like where we were as far as movie making goes back in the day and what he was creating out of thin air, I think this movie and Jaws, I would put this movie and Jaws over Raiders. For what it's worth, Richard Attenborough would have given the Oscar to Steven Spielberg. In fact, Attenborough was spellbound at the Director's Guild Awards, the DGAs, this year when the award was handed to him for Gandhi over Spielberg, which also kind of marked a turning point in everyone's heads that Spielberg might not win the Oscar. He was kind of the favorite until that moment at the DGAs. And eventually, we know he did not. Spielberg would eventually win an Oscar for directing Schindler's List, which is a great movie, to be sure, but I have an alternate universe theory here. I'm not saying here and now that I believe Spielberg should have won for E.T. this year, nor am I saying that he should not have won for Schindler's List, but I do believe if he had won, if he had gotten his just desserts for E.T., and whether he won or not for Schindler's List wouldn't have mattered, it would have been a second. We might still have our movies, our magic, kid at heart Spielberg, producing and directing some of the most entertaining movies today, instead of this yucky adulty Spielberg we have had since Schindler's List, doing movies like Bridge of Spies, the fucking I won an award, give it to me now post, and Lincoln. I don't know what it is. And this this is when I bury my Hollywood casket with a thousand cleated feet in my mouth, but Spielberg is one of the most disappointing directors to me today. I completely agree with you, and I think it's interesting that you kind of mark Schindler's List as a bit of a turning point. Although I will, I think 1993, as far as Spielberg was concerned, is his last good year. This is the year that he released both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And after that, it's hard to think of a movie that he made that I would even consider to be more than a three out of five star film. Uh, even the ones that were lauded, like Minority Report, I don't think is that good. But he did still continue to try to make kids movies, but I can't get through any of them. So this man from 1977 to 98, 21 years of just rocking it. Then he got Rocky. I mean, Minority Report, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, Munich, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, regardless if you give it a B or not. <laughs> I think everyone started being like, fuck you doing, Spielberg. The Adventures of Tintin, War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, the BFG. Christ, is this not the man who gave us things like Jaws, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. You, those movies were iconic. These movies nowadays, nobody is going to try and see. War Horse, fucking War Horse, the stage play is better than the movie. <laughs> The five years between. Wait a minute! How do they do? How do they do horses? Oh my god! It was it's puppeteers, and you literally forget that there's puppeteers on the stage moving the horse. There's a there's a scene in the stage play where the horse gets jumbled up and barbed wire. Like my heart was in my throat. I was like, I'm fucking. This is a puppet. I know it's a fucking puppet, but I'm sitting here thinking like I'm watching the dog get shot in Old Yeller. Spoiler alert. The years between Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan knocked something loose, I think, in Spielberg's brain, or it killed his inner child, and he has never been able to be as great at telling these tales since 1993's Jurassic Park, which, coincidentally, was him and Attenborough's teaming up. With Spielberg and E.T. robbed, I can't say for sure, but I know we all would be robbed of someone who should have been an easy-in-the-conversation Rushmore of director's pick. Now, with the remake of West Side Story coming up, fuck, and I'm really, this is just tough love. Like, I want Spielberg to find his <laughs> his inner child again. If he's listening to us now, ah. please stop doing what you're doing <laughs> yeah. and look in the mirror. I love how you're like, I can't go too hard on Hollywood. 
Let's go hard on Spielberg, though. <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm completely with you, man. I'm completely with you. I don't think too many people would be would not be. I don't think yeah. there's anybody in the room that would be like, no, no. The 21st century Steven Spielberg is the best variation of Steven. Well, Spielberg. I mean, what happens to white dudes when they get older? They they read war, books about war. I mean, I have a friend of a friend who recommended Bridge of Spies to me. We got into a big movie conversation, and he was just aghast that I'd never seen it. And I'm like, all right, dude, I'll see it. I'll watch it. And I'm made a point of renting it. This is a business partner of a good friend of mine. So I also kind of wanted to make a good impression on the guy. And yeah, dude, it's boring as fuck. <laughs> and you know who wrote that? The Coen brothers wrote that script. It's not bad, but it's not good. Again, it's maybe 2.5 out of 5 for me. Well, it's fun. The juxtaposition of these two things. I remember sitting in the theater and the social network trailer came up and it just started going through all the names. Kevin Spacey, at the time, we didn't know what a fuckhead he was, but he was producing it. Written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher, uh, soundtrack by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. Like, my blood was just burnt. Like, I was like, fuck the movie I'm seeing now. Give me that. You know, like, right. fast forward through time. Then I'm sitting in another movie theater about 10 years later, and suddenly I'm getting a trailer for a Washington Post movie starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and directed by Steven Spielberg. And all I could think about is fuck your Oscars grab movie that you're trying to do right now. And I don't know if maybe, maybe this is just inner vitriol. Maybe, maybe I'm jaded, but that's where I think of like Steven Spielberg now is just trying to get his awards and I don't like it. I don't like it. Ready Player One was probably like outside of the realm of that, of like trying to grab the awards and trying to get back into the nostalgia. And perhaps maybe he's too far away from the nostalgia, but everything that probably would have tickled a little kid like a a 1980s kid was amped up for the ADD generation of now. Yeah. Because I think the book was written and I think Steven Spielberg was hired and the movie was, it was made for nostalgia. It was made to look back in time at all the things that we loved growing up in the 1980s and the 1990s. And then the movie was like, no, fuck, it's going to be like a race and everything's going to throw raw. You know, like it was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, how am I supposed to enjoy this without cocaine? That is the most animated I've ever heard Spro be. Uh, <laughs> really got worked out there. It's a, uh, it's I'm a... right with you on Spielberg. I think that his the quality of his work has gone way down. I think that Spielberg is probably one of the, the major catalysts that that changed the way films are made. Once they saw that one person could found the formula to hit that huge wide audience, it was game on. And by the nineties, everybody was getting in on the, you know, the big budget action films. And, you know, I think it I think in, in a large part, Spielberg had uh, had a hand in in reducing the quality of those smaller, more thoughtful films. Do you have Spielberg uh, kind of up there? I For E.T., yes. I think I want to say, I, yeah, I know your top two. I would put, I'd put Spielberg in the top three category. I would not take away his Oscar nomination. No, no, Keep him no, up in no, the top five. no, I, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. I don't think Larry would. I, I would definitely, we could take Das Boot down. I'd put Dracula, not Dracula, Pacula up there for Sophie's Choice. Okay. Well, that brings us to another one that might get kicked out. And that would be the Sidney Pollack directed film Tootsie. Let me tell you about my client, Michael Dorsey. He was a fine actor, maybe a great actor, but for every role he wanted, there was a reason why he wasn't right. Sorry, you're too tall. I can be shorter. Nah, can't use you. Too short. Oh, I can be taller. Too moody. Next. Too old. Too stubborn. You're too much trouble. Too tough. Too temperamental. Too pushy. Too difficult. Michael, no one 
will hire you. Just watch me. But boy, did he show us. He auditioned for the female lead on a soap opera and became the hottest new actress in America. And you know what? No one knows his new identity, not even the girl he's madly in love with. Soon everyone will know that she's Dustin Hoffman and he's Tootsie. There's something so hokey about this movie, so fucking antiquated. And I, the music is partly at fault, but I think it goes deeper than that, deeper even than the obvious feminist criticisms you could lob at it. But let's let's go shallow first. I think it's because probably in the past 40 years, there's been so many stories like this that I'm immediately hardened by their presence. The character masquerading as a second person, but their double life keeps causing hilarious havoc. Oh my God, there's someone at the door and I'm not in character. Or, oh, I'm still in character and they don't know I'm being someone. It always ends with the big reveal. Holy shit, it was you the whole time. And of course, you know, don't forget the protagonist's newfound empathy or next level realization, revelation that leads into a predictable soggy denouement. It's a mystery to me why people fell at the feet of this two-star film. Even Pollock was surprised when it became successful. And then I wonder if it's me. I know I can be cynical. I know that this movie is revered, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I saw Mrs. Doubtfire one too many times before getting around to Tootsie. But I can stomach the hiding in plain sight formula if it's done well. And Mike Nichols' Birdcage jumps to mind. That movie is splendiferous. But I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Whatever it is that nags at me, though, I don't know. I just I don't respond to the Tootsie spell that captured audiences in 82. And it's still brought up by people who talk about movies for a living. I don't get it. It's a playful little romantic comedy about a cross-dressing man. And I think it made audiences in 1982 feel a little naughty. Didn't really challenge them too much much and it somehow convinced everybody that it was also smart that it was saying something you know it would have been smart it would have been smart if jessica lang's character at the end of the movie had told michael to fuck off that would have been smart I don't and dustin hoffman about. is not as good as i think everybody thinks he is yeah we discussed this already spro and i did but uh we're in agreement that he was always better as a character actor mm-hmm. midnight cowboy being the peak of his abilities louis dega Oh, right. It is. Yeah. You're a big Papillon fan. Rain Man. Garbage. The only two things that I want to say about Tootsie One, I think it's weird now, like looking back on it, like it almost is in the shadow of Robin Williams's Mrs. Doubtfire. What Robin Williams brought to that role over what Dustin Hoffman brought to Tootsie. The other thing is this film does have a famous shot in it. So we'd be remiss to not bring up the Tootsie shot which has been used in countless films since. And do either of you know what I'm talking about when it comes to the Tootsie shot? No. All right. So the Tootsie shot in filmmaking is the shot of Dustin Hoffman dressed as Tootsie walking down the sidewalk surrounded by people. Oh, right. And he's in focus and everybody else is. The camera's rack focus on that individual. So that was actually originated in this film. That's that's my fun fact for this. This would be a fun film to kind of sit down with, with Emily and just be like, what do you what do you think about it now? I think women ought to be entitled to have everything and all, etc. Except sometimes I think what they really want is to be entitled to be men. Like men are all equal in the first place, mm-hmm. which we're not. No. You know, I can remember years ago, there was none of this talk about what a woman was, what a man was. You just were what you were. Mm-hmm. And now they have all this stuff about how much you should be like the other sex, so you can be all more the same. 
Well, I'm sorry, but we're just not, you know? Right. Not on a farm, anyway. Bulls are bulls, and roosters don't try to lay eggs. There's so much to men in drag nowadays that is it's just not a thing. It's not surprising. It's not, it doesn't tell you anything really about the individual. I wonder if back in the day, people were like, oh my gosh, you brought up the birdcage, Nathan Lane in the birdcage and that whole movie. We were all giggling in the audience, you know, when Gene Hackman comes out in the end dressed in drag. It was it was different back in the day, back in the 20th century. You and I hosted the town's talent show and one of our shticks was to come out in our mother's dresses and ev- that brought the house down just us walking out in dresses and having the balls to do so so yeah so it's not shocking anymore it's not even amusing really no. to, it does you know like it's just it's just a man in a dress is that what the movie falls back on i'm surprised when you said that people were still talking about it no the, i mean the podcast i listen to that it gets brought up a lot and mostly mostly for for bill murray which i mean how many minutes of screen time does he have? Maybe six, maybe seven. Anyway, I think Tootsie didn't deserve a best director nod. I don't think Tootsie deserved this much time in our podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> final nominee was another guy named Sidney, Sidney Lumet for his film, The Verdict. And I'm already on record professing my undying love for Mr. Paul Newman. So I'll spare anybody any further gushing. Instead, we'll talk about Lumet, who was nothing if not an honest man. And there's a great documentary about him where he is actually in it. He provides quite a bit of commentary. It's kind of just talking with him and going through his career. But the doc opens with him telling a story about a time when he was in the service during World War II. He's on a train and he witnessed a woman being sexually assaulted by a group of his fellow soldiers and no one was doing anything. And he was faced with the moral conundrum of should he step in? And Lumet admits to chickening out. And it was just, there were simply too many of them and only one of him. And in all likelihood, he'd have been beaten, senseless, maybe even killed, and the woman would still have been raped. And admitting this out loud in a documentary that's supposed to be a celebration of him shows the kind of vulnerability that most people have, but hide. Most of us aren't heroes. Most of us go through life wishing we were, and only a select few of us act on the opportunity. And those are the stories that Lumet likes to tell by and large. And that's the story of Frank Galvin and the verdict. Newman plays Frank Galvin, a lawyer whose career's reduced to showing up at hospitals and funerals, distributing his card. His backstory is pretty limited, um, apart from the fact that he was allegedly involved with some jury tampering, possibly even framed for it. And that's why his career is on the downswing and he drinks so very much. Frank's only real friend in the world, Mickey, played so wonderfully by Jack Warden, arranges for him to take over legal proceedings on a medical malpractice case concerning a woman who died during childbirth. So the comatose woman's kin want Galvin to settle, but when he sees the woman laid up in the hospital bed, he begins to wonder if this might be his chance to do something right and good for a change. So he turns down a pretty hefty settlement check, which would have yielded him a tidy sum for essentially doing nothing. I'm going to write to the board of bar overseers about you today, fella. You're on your way out. They should have kicked you out in that Lillibridge case. Now, this is it today. I'm an attorney. I'm on trial before the bar representing my client. My client. You open your mouth, you're losing my case for me. Now, listen to me. No, you listen to me. All I want on this trial was a fair shake. Okay? Push me into court five days early. I lose my star witness, and I can't get a continuance, and I don't care. I'm going up there, I'm going to try it, I'm going to let the jury decide. You know, they told me about you. Said you're a hard ass, you're a defendant's judge. Well, I don't care. I said to hell with it, to hell with it. 
Look, Alvin, many years ago... Come on. Hey, don't give me that shit about you being a lawyer, too. I know about you. You couldn't hack it as a lawyer. You were a bag man for the boys downtown, and you still are. I know about you. Are you done? You're damn right I'm done. I'm going to ask for a mistrial. I'm going to request that you disqualify yourself from sitting on this case. I'm going to take a transcript of the trial to the Judicial Conduct Board and ask that they impeach your ass. You aren't going to get a mistrial, boy. We're going back there this afternoon and we're going to try this case to the end. Now you get out of here before I call a bailiff and have you thrown in jail. But let's talk turkey. The movie's good, not great. The photography's often quite elegant with some great lighting. I'm thinking of the opening shot right now. The camera's stately, moving slow, if at all, and lingering on the actors, which of course is to accentuate all the wonderful performances. Lumet is terrific, but the verdict isn't his best work. And unfortunately, his best two films, 12 Angry Men and Dog Day Afternoon, came out the same years as David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai and Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, respectively. He did get an honorary Oscar in 04, which is more than Kubrick got, but as far as this year is concerned, he's really only better than Pollock, in my opinion. Oh, and Peterson. So when it comes to the verdict, this movie, from a writing standpoint, now I know we're here to talk about Best Director, but from a writing standpoint, this movie is hailed in the circles as being one of the most structurally sound screenplays of all time. But that's the script. And really, Lumet, as a director, doesn't bring a whole lot of style, as we are talking about, to it. He's pretty much just executing the script with fantastic actors in it. I think there's more style to Sophie's Choice than there is in Lumet's The Verdict. And so I would put Pacula above Lumet for this year. I think that's because you're lulled by the 1920s and 30s ambiance. Well, you have to. I mean, that style. He's There's bringing you back to that lulling. time period. The opening mm-hmm. shot is him playing, an, you know, a pinball, pinball in like a <laughs> with the like classic East Coast stained stained glass windows of a of a bar where you can go in in the middle of the day and it's dark as shit in there. I think the best scene in the verdict is Paul Newman just staring at the bed and you hear the you hear the hospital you know the hospital noises behind him and it's just it's long and it's unsettling he's looking at and the photos Lumet. yeah that's Lumet's work right there that I will give him but and I wouldn't necessarily take the nomination away but this is just a good director executing a great script and not fucking it up I can live with that I can live with that I love Lumet though he's a good dude not a lot of good dudes that same scene that you found impressive I liked it too I liked the way it actually in real time allowed those Polaroid films to develop in front of our eyes and it really kind of brought home the gravity of the situation that that poor woman was dealing with it was a, it was a powerful moment but I don't think that the film deserves best director man the part that gets me is where he is clearly on the cusp of a panic attack when the his love interest played by Charlotte Ramp, Rampling is trying to like pump his tires and hit him with that tough love and light a fire under his ass or whatever and he like gets so overwhelmed he just doesn't say anything and just rushes into the bathroom and slams the door and she's like knocking and he opens it opens it a crack and he's just like don't push me <laughs> that that part got to me pretty hard because it, it you do feel the the like intense pressure as soon as he decides he's going to take on the case and and do it do what's right instead of do what's easy and walk away with the money as soon as his conscience gets the better of him just the absolute and total like the whole case falls apart and it's just miraculous that he's able to pull it out in the end but all right 
Well, I do wonder how much intrigue we build up for the show. Like, is our audience kind of being like, well, who who are they going to pick? I don't think we put it on like the episode no. information or whatnot. Nope. So we have, we're taken away from Richard Attenborough for Gandhi. The four Oscar nominated films are Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot, Steven Spielberg, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, Sidney Pollack for Tootsie, Sidney Lumet for The Verdict. We already said that we would pop up some of the other directors, I think, I'd put fast Amy, times. I'd put Amy Herkeling up there, definitely over Tootsie. And I'd put Pacula up for Sophie's Choice. So I wonder, like, if our audience is listening, are they wondering, well, who the fuck would you award? If you're one of our stringent listeners and you listen to our last show where we had Lawrence on, which was our season finale of season one, I think we hinted at this, at least the film, maybe not the director, but Lawrence said something in this episode, which mirrored what he said in the last episode of saying that he wanted to live in the world of the dark crystal. And when we were talking about Apocalypse Now and Alien, you guys were also bringing up that phrase of, I want to live in this world. And none of the worlds that we have talked about yet are what we are going to award this year, which is Ridley Scott for Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three males, three females. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a Buzzlov. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? I'm in a bar here now, down in the 4th sector. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? That's not my kind of place. Time to die. If I didn't what can we say about this movie that won't just poach somebody else's praise? How about this? I just got done recently watching a whole lot of movies from this year, and one common thread is shitty soundtracks, just as far as the ear can hear. I think maybe if Crow and Heckerling had had carte blanche, I could mention Fast Times as an outlier, but unfortunately they were forced to use Raised on the Radio because 
execs were convinced that the Ravens were going to blow up. And I couldn't even find a fucking wiki page on these scrubs. Yeah, exactly. Who? Steelheads are kind of like weathermen in that way, you know? Frequently wrong, accidentally right on occasion, and mostly useless. But out of that musical muck came Blade Runner with an original score by a dude named Vangelis, whose real name is Super Greek, and I'm not going to try and say it. Suffice to say, he did us all a favor by not going with what's on his birth certificate. And his score, like every part of Blade Runner, is as integral as every other facet. And the the Blade Runner OST is one of the probably five records I'd buy if I wanted to be trendy and waste money on a record player. But the point is, Scott was a bit of a tyrant on this set, and it's been well documented. There are books, there are documentaries galore on the making of this movie. And, you know, we can go into a little bit of it, but American crews were totally down with this guy coming over to our side of the pond and bossing everybody around. And he made enemies real fast on this set. By halfway through day one, he had already forced, he looked through his viewfinder to see that the giant pillars in Terrell's office were upside down. Not that anyone would have noticed, I don't think. If you look at them and imagine them upside down, it's like they would have looked pretty similar. He made them go and and flip them. First thing when he got there, day one of shooting, made them made them go and flip them. They couldn't even roll cameras until nearly lunchtime. It took all morning for them to flip them. So, but that was what he did. He got in everybody's shit. He went to every single department head and basically criticized them for what they'd done and then told them how it should be done. I could talk about this film all day. This easily slides into my top five favorite films of all time. And like Henson, Scott had a very clear vision that was so deliberate and intricate. We positively got lost in the world he created. And film is, it's a visual medium. And and if a director is going to be considered for best director, in my opinion, it, it has to have their stamp on it in some way. It needs to stand out as visually interesting or original. And there is no question this is one of the most original looking films of all time. It was beginning, he was beginning to find that look in Alien, but he really created a universe in Blade Runner. And it's it's a 10. I mean, if, if there's ever a movie that's a 10, this is it. It's interesting to hear you talk about how much of a tyrant he was on set and it being 1982 when it wasn't necessarily out of the realm for visionaries to be difficult to work with. Where nowadays, you know, if anybody goes on a rant, it is recorded and sent out to the stratosphere to try and cancel them for being difficult people. I don't know necessarily where I stand on that, though. As long as nobody is getting physically hurt, perhaps, and maybe there's a line that you do not cross, I feel like, yeah, if he comes in and you fucked up his vision... He has every right to ream you a new asshole and make sure that you do your job as well so that you could be a part of something extraordinary like the film is Blade Runner. So the, so the story goes, the straw that broke the camel's back was when he was being interviewed. I don't remember by which publication, but they were like, hey, how do you like working in America? And he's like, uh, I actually kind of miss working with British crews because they don't argue. When, they, when you say, hey, I want this, they say, yes, governor. And that was... That that led to what is affectionately referred to as the T-shirt wars. Every single American crewman the next day had a shirt that said, yes, governor, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was wondering if that was like a straight quote or... Harrison and I fell out only because I was the new kid on the block in Hollywood and I'd never shot in Hollywood before, so that was my first film in Hollywood. And by the, that time, I'm 42 years old. I think I've earned what I knew and I'd earned... I didn't have to be asked and told what I was doing all the time. 
2,700 commercials later, Alien and the um, prize winner at Cannes, the duelist, I figure I knew what I was doing. But by being the new kid on the block, they didn't know who I was. And I think big, large organizations like Hollywood, um, which the British may knock a lot, but Hollywood does put out a lot of movies a year. And I wish the British film industry put out that many movies a year, right? Um, they, you, as soon as you, you come in, I've seen more directors who are talented at a certain thing brought into Hollywood, and then once they're in Hollywood, Hollywood then say, well, we don't really want you to do that. We want you to do this. And you say, wait a minute, I came in here to do what I know, what I do best, so what changed? A little bit of that changed. And so I had to absolutely stand by what I wanted. So I became very bad-tempered during the making of that, as did he. Have there been times, are there times when a star is so big that they literally just do what they want and there's nothing Not to with me. Not with me. Never, never, never. You can't let that happen. And you've got to find a way of, first of all, avoiding that. You never want confrontation because um, being northerner, I can take confrontation. It's over and it's forgotten in eight minutes. And if you can't forget it, then you leave this terrible bruise that can go on right throughout the whole movie. So first of all, you've got to avoid it. Secondly, and if you can't, you've got to be assertive and bring, make your point quickly so they can make it back. It's called intelligent negotiation. Well, I mean, on that point, you can't deny the style that this film has. You can't deny that it's before its time of, of what he was bringing to. I think one of your speeches, I don't know if you've given it publicly on record, but the years of Alien to Blade Runner is the one-two punch of Ridley Scott. Oh, yeah. Without going back too far, I think the top three most influential sci-fi films of all time are 2001 A Space Odyssey, Blade Runner, and Alien, which makes Ridley Scott a bit of a genre legend. I mean, you could throw Star Wars in there if you wanted, but yeah. Like you look at Blade Runner now, this was this was genre bending. This was completely original visually. And if he was a tyrant on the set and he wanted everything to be his way, this was Ridley Scott through and through every single decision. I started the episode saying Richard Attenborough probably wasn't a wrangler of 300,000 extras on Gandhi. Ridley Scott was probably in every single creator's room over their shoulder signing off on every single decision when it comes to Blade Runner. So this is his work of art. And I think it should be not only recognized, but awarded. He, he seems to have chilled the fuck out since he's gotten older. But this this movie went into production right around the time that his um, older brother passed away from skin cancer, which was very sudden. So like the super dark, dark tone of, I mean, every single scene. The, the film feels very personal and that might have something to do with it. And then meanwhile, you know, he had studio execs up his ass about A, being over budget, B, being behind schedule and C, being off brand. They were all under the impression that they were part of making something kind of more akin to Star Wars and far less cerebral and violent. There's a rumor that says that the day that the final shot was printed was also the day that the executives had planned to relieve him as director and take over the production. You could go on and on and on. I mean, there are so many... Con Sean Young and Harrison Ford hated each other, hated each other's guts. There is lots of criticism for the sex scene, which is really more of like a rape scene where Deckard rapes Rachel, more or less, but 
whether or not he was a replicant, whether he was, Scott said he was, Ford said he wasn't because Ford Ford wanted the character of Deckard to be. There's even a rumor that says, even after Ridley Scott said, oh, you know, they made me put the fucking voiceover over it and it ruined it. There's rumors that say that Scott wanted the voiceover. So, it, I mean, it is such a tangled web of just absolute <laughs> psychoticness. And then out of the rubble came this movie. It's really kind of a miracle. So you're saying, you know, with all these rumors swirling around, there are a bunch of cuts that came out. Are we saying, like, was the voiceover in the director's cut? That would be kind of like a sure No, the voiceover was in the original theatrical cut. Yes. The director's cut had for the director's cut? It was yes. taken out, yes. Yes. And the original cut, not only did it have the voiceover, but it had the happy ending with the stock footage from Kubrick's The Shining, where, you know, Rachel and Deckard fly away. But yeah, that director's cut, um, which only got out because it was accidentally sent to a projectionist at a, at a theater. So goes the story. Yeah, I think the, the final cut was superfluous. I think the, the 1992 director's cut, which was released on DVD eventually, is my favorite version of, of the movie. And we're talking about universe building. We're talking about originality. You know, I, I'm hopeful that Blade Runner 2049 and the new animated Blade Runner Black Lotus are, are going to bring new audiences to the original film. But ultimately, I don't think either of these are necessary. I really think that the first film said and did it all. Yeah, I think 2049 was one of, if not the best sequel to any film I've ever seen. But that 2049 was a clear love song to the first film. I think it was a masterfully written and directed film. Spro, what did you think of 2049? I liked it. I think it was a good continuation. Is it the uh, first film? No, of course not. Nothing could be. Yeah. But I think it was a very, very solid continuation of the story. And the premise of it is a really cool idea. I think my beef is that's the the contradictory direction that the script went. I, I, I guess I just accepted that Deckard, after seeing the superior director's cut, I just accepted that Deckard also was a replicant. And I think they could have told the 2049 story with both Rachel and Deckard being deceased. But I don't know, maybe it's Gosling. I think he's a great actor, but I think his look's all wrong for that movie. Maybe it's the end of Blade Runner, which works maybe more perfectly than any other open-ended kind of epilogue that I just didn't really want to know what happened next. I don't Here, know. Here's, the, here's the last thing I'm going to say about it. Okay, so the main character of the original Blade Runner, Deckard, is not the most beautiful and interesting character of the film. The most beautiful, interesting character of the film is Roy Batty. And that's fine. It works for that film. But what they took that same formula for what we liked about Roy Batty, and they gave it to the main character of K in 2049. And it makes K, who is the main character, the center of the story and the one that you're most interested in. And that's, I think that was actually an improvement upon the original Blade Runner. I am not even remotely claiming that 2049 is anywhere near as good as the first one. What I'm saying is, is it was a lovely continuation of the story. And the fact that they made it 35 years after the original, and it was that good. When you look at Blade Runner, it's amazing. It's perfect for exactly what it is. You look at it kind of now, and there he is slightly kneecapped with what he was, what was available at the time that he couldn't do. But for what was his restrictions and restraints, he worked perfectly in that world. It's kind of like Coppola when it comes to Apocalypse Now. 2049, I think, was a great... They took every 
everything that Ridley Scott presented in the original Blade Runner. And then they they kept it feeling the exact same way, but then they accentuated some of the effects with what they are able to do today. I think it was a very good continuation of the Blade Runner atmosphere and world. There's there's not much else to say about it. And, but getting back to Ridley Scott in this movie, this is one that even though I have it on Blu-ray DVD... I almost kind of would prefer not to watch it on my television. I would prefer to go and see it in a dark theater on a rainy night. Um, mm, that would be great. It's just such a special movie. And, you know, the fact that it was critically and commercially just dead on arrival, it's just amazing to me that so many people missed, so many people missed the boat on this one. Just, it's amazing to me. And then to couple that with the, I still don't understand Tootsie phenomenon, but, you know. Makes me feel self-righteous. I me, know I'm a lot more intelligent than the average average American, if that's the way cinema goes. It seems like the movies I love the most are the ones that are just, like you said, dead at the box office. Fine, so be it. It just, it makes me think again, like Spro harken back to the last time you were on. And we were kind of talking about the same era. You know, it's it's movies like Tootsie and E.T. and Gandhi that are hopeful stories that are by and large the ones that get nominated and receive awards. And it's movies like this that are appreciated by the truly passionate film goers and the ones that do survive. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shore of the lion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near ten hours a game. That's another one in the books and uh, a second visit from Lawrence. We enjoyed having you. Lawrence, thanks for coming on, bud. Well, thanks again for having me, guys. Uh, I know we disagreed a great deal on the quality of the directors from, and the films from 82, but I think we can all agree that the best song from 82 definitely goes to Dan Hill's It's a Long Road from the end credits of Rambo. <laughs> Such poetry as there cannot be matched anywhere yet. I'll tell you. Uh, well, it was nice having you, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you again soon. Spro, as always, it's a great joy to make these with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that you didn't fight me too hard on this episode. We've come to a three-way consensus. <laughs> Thanks to our humble little audience as well for listening. I'm sure I speak for Spro and Lawrence that it's an absolute pleasure to bring you these little trifles, and we appreciate the living hell out of you for listening. And of course, as always, we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are read. It's a long road when you're on your own And it hurts when they tear your dreams apart 
And that is it for this one. Tune in November 29th for our next episode where we will conclude the Poly Academy series. Wow, giving the Oscar to Denzel. Are we taking an Oscar away from him? Are we really? Find out two Mondays from now. Woo-hoo. And if you're new to our little shindigs, Bro and Lee episodes, old and fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are red.